following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. encouragement to us is, do we believe this is God speaking to us? I don't know how you uh, approach uh, the sermon. I remember as a, a young child kind of waiting for the beginning of the sermon and settling down for like the long half hour of, of just sitting there. But this sermon is, is us coming to hear God speaking to us. That's what we've just sung. Um, do we believe that hearing God's word is God speaking to us today? Let's turn to God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're continuing our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and remember Paul is in the midst of addressing a number of concerns that he has with the Corinthian believers. He's addressed uh, the contentions and pride that have been leading to divisions within the congregation. He's addressed uh, abhorrent sexual immorality and the need to discipline active sin in the church. And now tonight, Paul's going to turn to address another concern uh, with the way uh, the Corinthians uh, are behaving. Good read verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. God, this is your word. It is the food that we need, that our souls need for life pray that your spirit who wrote these words would speak what you want us to hear tonight. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. I think if you were to chronicle some of the major problems in our culture and our society today, lawsuits and the way the court system is used and abused would certainly be at the top of your list. 
Our court system was obviously set up as a protection to people from being wronged. And yet today, our court system has been turned by some into a money-making machine at the expense of people and, uh, and, and large corporations. If you want a painful laugh, you can check out the top ten lists that have been compiled by the organization Faces of Lawsuit Abuse. Every year, they compile a top ten list of the most ridiculous uh, lawsuits and court cases in our culture. I scanned through the uh, court cases for 2014 and saw that one man sued uh, ESPN for $10 million for filming him while he had fallen asleep during a baseball game. Uh, He claimed that uh, he had suffered $10 million worth of humiliating emotional damage as well as potential wage-earning abilities since no one might hire him if they recognized him as the sleeping man from the baseball game. I'm not sure what job he's planning to get, but uh, $10 million seems awfully generous. I also noticed that a, a Colorado man was rescued last year during the intense flooding uh, that happened out in Colorado. You may remember the flooding there. He was rescued from a, his car that had been flipped upside down, but instead of thanking the rescuers who risked their lives to save him, he sued them for $500,000 for taking so long to get to him. I didn't hear the outcome of the case. I'm hoping he lost. Uh, And then I also noticed uh, some of the uh, uh, younger folks in the audience may uh, enjoy this one. A lady who wrote an obscure autobiography about growing up with her sister in the mountains sued Disney for $250 million, claiming that the movie Frozen stole her life story. Uh, Again, she has a high view of her her, the value of her life story, I guess, $250 million. Um, I noticed also that uh, a man has sued Subway for $5 million because his footlong sub was only 11 inches long. That's an expensive last inch of your sandwich if, uh, if it's worth $5 million. And so you, we've, got this, we've got these lawsuits going on in our culture, in our society, and it may not be surprising given the current practice of litigation to see Paul bringing up lawsuits as another area in which uh, members of the Corinthian church need to change how they act as followers of Christ. But what about other scenarios? What about other uses of the courts? What about other lawsuits? What about other scenarios of justice? What about my friend in seminary? My best friend in seminary purchased a house in his first year in seminary, and it was a fixer-upper of all fixer-uppers. And their goal was to spend the four years in seminary fixing this house up and then hopefully selling it at the end of the four years and using the proceeds or using the the profits of fixing up this house to help pay for seminary. And I remember uh, remember going over to his house shortly after he had made the purchase for a lath and plaster pulling party. And we were pulling lath and plaster from walls and ceilings. And as we moved around the house, we got to the living room and pulled all the lath and plaster out. And as we pulled all the lath and plaster out, we noticed there's a large window in the front of the house, covered most of the front room of the living room. And uh, the window was installed with no header. And if you've ever, if you've ever uh, built a house or know much about construction, building a window without a header means essentially that the weight of the roof will sit on the window. And that's what had happened here, and the weight of the roof had had caved slightly at that point and cracked the window and the wall all the way down to the foundation. Now, this is obviously not a good scenario. The cheapest option for my friend was to replace the stone wall with a framed wall at the cost of $17,000. 
Now, um, my friend had purchased this house uh, through a Christian realtor, um, and he, the Christian realtor, had recommended a friend of his, a fellow member of his church and an elder at the church, to do the home inspection. And the elder of this church had done the home inspection and signed it off with the only problems being needed paint. Uh, there was a lot more that needed to be done with the house, but obviously he had missed a key structural problem with the house. When my friend got his contractor to come in, the contractor said, well, I tell you what, this is such an obvious problem with the house. Any home inspector worth their salt would see this. I would sue that contractor for every dollar he's worth. Particularly when my friend found out that the uh, home inspector actually was not still a home inspector. He had an expired license. So what do you do? What do you do if my, you're my friend? He's clearly been wronged. He's clearly even has a legitimate, uh, a legitimate complaint. And yet the home inspector against whom this complaint could be carried was an elder at his church, a friend of, uh, of mutual believers. What does, what does my friend do? Well, he turned to 1 Corinthians for wisdom. That's what we want to look at tonight. What does Paul have to say about the use of the court system as believers? Not just in ridiculous cases, but in legitimate cases of wrong and justice. I think as we read Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it quickly becomes apparent that Paul is not really concerned about whether your sub is 11 or 12 inches long or whether you fell asleep in a baseball game. He's concerned with Christians engaging in lawsuits and litigation at a much more fundamental level. And Paul really details two fundamental problems with the way that Christians were approaching lawsuits in the Corinthian church. First problem uh, that Paul addresses in verses 1 through 6, and that is that Christians are willing to go to non-Christian courts instead of solving the problem within the church. You see what Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Notice the strength of Paul's uh, language here too. He doesn't say, well, you know, on balance, why don't you go and talk to some you know, fellow Christians instead of going to the courts? He doesn't say, well, I think it would be wiser of you to get some Christian advice here. No, he says, do you dare? Do you dare go before the unrighteous rather than before the saints when a brother has a grievance against another? We should note here that Paul's concern is not that Christians are going to go before corrupt judges. Some people have uh, looked at this passage and said, well, Paul's real concern is that non-Christians are corrupt. And so, you know, we wouldn't want to go before non-Christians in court because they might be corrupt. That's not Paul's concern here. It's not a matter of whether or not non-Christian judges are corrupt. The issue is whether we are going before fellow believers or unbelievers. And there are a number of reasons why believers should not go to court against each other before unbelieving judges. The first reason really is related to what Dr. Light talked about last week in his sermon from 1 Corinthians 5. Dr. Light talked about how the name of Christ is shamed when Christians publicly sin. And, and the name of Christ is sort of drugged through the mud when, when Christians sort of lay out their dirty laundry, if you will, before the world. He was talking last week about um, believers who, who committed sexual immorality and, and, and uh, did so publicly. Well, once again, if Christians are supposed to witness to the work of their Savior in their lives, 
What could be a worse testimony to their Savior than two Christians going before a non-Christian judge and airing all of their grievances against one another? What could be a worse testimony to Christ than two Christians battling it out, duking it out in court before a non-Christian judge? Christ called us uh, to love those, even those who have hurt us. In fact, our love for those who we would naturally not be able to love is one of the greatest public witnesses a Christian can have to the work of Christ in his life. And would we instead go before non-Christians and lay out litigation against each other as brothers in Christ? This is exactly the opposite of the testimony we are called to have as fellow brothers and sisters in our Lord. Secondly, in in addition, Christians and non-Christians will judge on different standards. We're we're we're, We're basing our decisions on a different set of rules. In fact, Paul has just explained, if you think back to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said that the Spirit of God searches the deep things of God, and that those who do not have the Spirit do not have the wisdom of God. This is not saying that unbelievers don't have the written laws of a country before them. Of course they do. But it is saying that the basis on which a non-Christian looks at a case and the basis of which a believer will look at a situation and how believers ought to relate to one another are different. The wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God is not with a person who does not have the Spirit. And so it's, um, I think, with some, something of a, a dig that Paul says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle these disputes? Of course there should be someone wise enough among you to settle these disputes. You have the Spirit of the living God living amongst you. The Spirit of God searches the deep things of God Himself. And those who have the Spirit can discern spiritually things that are going on around them. That's what Paul just said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So clearly believers should have the wisdom as they look to God and as the Spirit of God dwells in them to judge what Paul calls trivial matters or matters of this world. So those are, those are two reasons why we should not go to court before non-Christians. But most fundamentally, and this is where Paul actually spends the majority of his time where he digs in, most fundamentally, believers who go to court against each other are forgetting who they are. Believers are forgetting who God has called them to be. See, those who have been united to Christ actually have a job that they are being prepared for. And it's a job that they will have in the heavenly courtroom on the final day. Paul says that all believers, all believers will share in the role of judging the world on the last day. He says that we have been called to be fellow judges with Christ of the world. The saints will reign with Christ and judge with Christ those uh, who will be judged in the age to come. He said, you see what he says in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to judge trivial cases? And he even goes on to say in verse 3, and this is something of an odd phrase. We don't know maybe exactly what he means here, but he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? If we are to judge angels, how much more ought we to judge matters pertaining to this life? Paul's, Paul's expressing sort of the magnitude of the job that we will have in being united to Christ. And he says, those who have been united to Christ 
is promised judges of this world, how is it that we can't judge in a matter of, of trivial disputes pertaining to this world, matters of money and property? If we can judge on the final judgment day with Christ, how can we not decide a matter of money or property? Do you not know that we are even to judge the angels? This probably isn't something that we typically think about, and maybe it even seems backward. I think if you ever read any of those comic strips that talk about the judgment day in heaven, usually the angels are the ones judging us, or at least the angels are helping God judge us. But this is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that that, um, mankind will actually be united to Christ and will be part of judging even the angels. Angels uh, are not made in the image of God like mankind is. Hebrews talks about angels as just ministering spirits that help God's elect people. And if we are united to Christ, um, who has been raised to, to a superior position over angels, as Hebrews says, it shouldn't be surprising that Paul would say, remember, we are going to judge even the angels. We are co-sons of God and co-heirs with Christ, so we will be co-judges with him. We need, to, we need to raise our minds as believers to the magnitude of who we are in Christ, to the incredible the incredible hope that we have is not just one of escaping hell and getting into heaven. We have been called to be co-heirs, co-judges with Christ in the world to come. This is who we are. This is who we will be. This is what we have in our Savior. We have been raised to a status as co-sons of God. And we will judge even angels. If that's the case, if we look around at one another as fellow believers in Christ and say we will be co-judges with Christ on the last day, how is it that we don't have someone amongst us who can help us sort out a few dollars or a little bit of property here and there? That's basically what Paul is saying here. Now, maybe, maybe when it boils down to it, you know, it, it, maybe we think, well, a few dollars. I mean, we're talking about $17,000 if you're my friend in seminary or $500,000 in some of these courses. That's not trivial. In light of the world to come and the ages of eternity, that is trivial. That is trivial. Paul is recalling our minds to what actually matters and what doesn't. So Paul's argument here basically boils down to this. Would you go as a mere plaintiff before an unbeliever in the courtrooms of this world when you and your fellow believers are actually judges in the courtroom of the world to come? Do not go before unbelievers as fellow sons and daughters of God. I think Paul's call to believers is this. If you have a dispute, do not take one another to court. Go to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Go to believers who have the Spirit of God. Go to those who will judge the whole world with Christ for justice and peace. Don't enter this pattern, this attitude and approach of litigation and lawsuits. We are fellow members of the body of Christ. And of course, the call, the Bible does not just say, well, if you have a dispute, if you have an argument, well, just sweep it under the rug and forget about it. The Bible gives us direction on how to take disputes to one another. Matthew 18 talks about if you have a grievance against one another, what should you do? There are, there are, there are biblical direction here, and we're not going to go into all of that tonight. But I want to just make it clear, the Bible is not saying, forget your disputes, just sweep them under the rug, forget about it. The Bible gives us direction. But the direction is to go to one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't go before 
the unrighteous in the courts. So this is Paul's first critique of the Corinthian Christians, that they would go before unbelievers to solve disputes between themselves. But Paul moves on in verses 7 and 8 to to carry a second point, a second problem with how believers are engaging in lawsuits in the Corinthian church. He pushes the question to a deeper level here. Maybe the Corinthians would be willing to give up going to secular courts and seek to solve problems within the church, but that's not the end of the question for Paul. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says this, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Even if we are keeping ourselves out of the secular courts, Paul says, to have lawsuits between brothers in Christ is already a defeat for you. The Christian community, of course, is still marred by sin, and so confronting hurt, mediating conflict, reconciliation between offended believers is absolutely something that's going to happen in the church. Mediation, reconciliation, forgiveness, this must be part of how sinners who are living together will will deal with one another. But the heart, spirit, and approach of a lawsuit, the heart, spirit, and approach of litigation in and of itself tears communities apart. One author put it this way, he said, litigation is a manifestation of the absence of community. Lawsuits contribute to the disintegration of society. For loving concern for one's neighbor is extinguished in an atmosphere of rank individualistic egoism. You see what he's saying? Lawsuits are one individual against another demanding their rights against one another. And how can you live in brotherly love, in community, with that spirit and that attitude? To have lawsuits at all, the attitude and approach behind a lawsuit is already a defeat for men and women seeking to live in community as God's people. Where Christ's church is supposed to be a community of those saved by Christ, living with and for each other to the glory of God, lawsuits are a self-driven demand for individual rights and justice at the expense of others. And the spirit and process of lawsuits necessarily tears apart this community of Christ's body. I think Paul presses this this question even a bit further. In verses 7 and 8, notice his follow-up questions. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? These questions strike to the heart of our approach to being hurt and being wronged. We have a natural desire for justice that is a reflection of God's character. And so when someone is wronged, we sense this desire for justice, but God is calling us here. God's word is saying that there may be a place within the body of believers where an individual's demand for justice is not the highest priority in our relationship with one another. He's saying, would it not be better in some of these cases, rather than demanding the justice of what I am due, to be wronged, to let ourselves be defrauded? You know, when it comes to the story, a story like that of my friend from seminary, my emotional ire gets up. I remember sitting in his living room, you know, with all sorts of feelings and choice thoughts and words for this home inspector who had just cost a seminary student $17,000. But though I'm ready to go after a guy like this, the Bible's call here is, are there not times 
when being wronged is of greater import than seeking my due. There, of course, is, as we've said, a, a biblical way to pursue peace. And, and my, my friend certainly did that. My friend went to elders of his church and, and got elders of his church and elders of the home inspector's church together and, and brought elders of both churches and, and sought resolution. But unfortunately, they were not able to come to a resolution. The home inspector firmly denied any culpability, and the elders of his church either didn't have uh, the desire or, or understanding to... to to encourage him otherwise. So um, there is an appropriate way to go here, but if, if reconciliation and mediation breaks down, Paul's critique here strikes at the heart of the question. Remember what Jesus has already said. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 when he said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? But I say to you, love even your enemies. And he follows this up by saying, if anyone sues you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You see what Jesus is calling us to? You see what Jesus' words are saying? Loving those, not just who deserve love or who are easy to love, but those who are hard to love, carries over in situations of conflict. Jesus' call was consistently that we should not seek to maintain our rights or our possessions as our chief priority. Our chief priority is how we demonstrate the love of Christ, who was beaten for sins he didn't commit, who was killed by those he didn't harm, who was punished so that others could receive life. That's the pattern of Christ, who suffered wrong though he had done no wrong, and did so willingly, that he might save many. Would we be willing to suffer wrong that we didn't deserve if it would be a testimony and an arrow pointing to the work of our Savior? Wouldn't we be willing to suffer wrong as well? Now, I know there's all sorts of protest in my heart about this. What about justice? Doesn't God love justice? Isn't it appropriate to love justice? And we talked about this passage in our senior high Sunday school class about a year ago. And remember, all sorts of creative solutions from a number of people in the class and how we could sort of get around this and still bring a lawsuit legitimately. And that's, a, that, that's our desire, right? How can we sort of find a loophole in this text here and, and drive this lawsuit home? Um, but the question needs to come down to this. Do we believe that our deepest identity and our deepest hope are in Christ? Do we believe that our great reward and our great treasure comes from Christ and is not of this world? If we demand our rights and our due and material possessions of this world at the expense of the community of Christ, we're betraying where our hope lies, where we're betraying where our identity lies. The things of this world do not compare to the hope of the world to come. There's all, sorts of, there's all sorts of questions that sort of circle around this. You know, what if I work for an organization, and, and how, do I, how do I operate if I'm responsible for people in an organization? And, and well, what if, what if the other person uh, you know, was in the church but isn't acting like a you know, There's all sorts of questions around this that, that we, could, we could circle around. But rather than taking time to, to look at all of those questions tonight, I think we want to go back to the core principle here. Do we believe, as Scripture continually tells us, that God will reward sacrifice for His name, but a desire to demand our rights now come at the expense of the glory of God now 
and for eternity. Do we believe that God will bring justice to his people in the end so we don't need to demand it in law courts now? These are the questions at the core of this principle. And I think the application of this principle is, is broader than just filing a lawsuit. Maybe, maybe one of you someday will have a Christian home inspector miss a crack in the wall of your house. It's possible. Maybe some of you will have a Christian brother do something that costs you a lot of money. That may happen. But the application of this principle, again, goes broader than that. I would be willing to bet that every single person in this room has been hurt and has been wronged in some way. Is there any one of us who haven't been hurt by someone in some way? I don't think so. Maybe the wrong is a hurtful word that was flung at you. Maybe the wrong was that you were bullied or mocked by other people. Maybe the wrong is a parent or a family member who has lashed out in anger at you. Maybe the wrong is a boss who has treated you unfairly. Maybe the wrong is a neighbor who's constantly grumpy and makes accusations or demands on you. Maybe the wrong is a spouse who has hurt you and not genuinely repented. Maybe the wrong is a friend who has ignored you. Maybe the wrong is a financial loss that went unpaid. I don't know what the wrong may be, but the question is, how will we respond when we are wronged? In my experience, most of us Christians respond to being hurt in the same way that the world responds to being hurt. We are hurt, so we get angry. We get angry with the person who hurts us. We feel justified at some level in bearing a grudge or bitterness against that person or avoiding them or getting back at them in some way. I think about the number of times, even in the few years that I've been talking to to teens as, as a youth pastor, how many times I've heard, well, yes, but if you knew what he did to me. How many times those words have, have I've heard in, in just a short time? Instead of going to the person to seek reconciliation, we gossip, telling others about how they've hurt us. We tear community apart instead of overlooking offenses or forgiving those who hurt us. We don't follow Peter's call in 1 Peter 2 when he says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. This is the call for us as believers. Again, there are so many questions about conflict and peacemaking that could come up. What's the wisest way to handle different situations? What if someone hurts us repeatedly and doesn't stop? And there are so many questions here. But the key question of this passage for our heart is this. Is our first desire to be treated right and to demand our due or to get justice for ourselves? Do we feel justified in excusing our sinful response? Do we feel justified in excusing our anger, our gossip, our bitterness, our divisive spirit because someone else has done something to hurt us? If we do, we are ignoring who Christ is, the example that he has set for us and the pattern he calls us to follow. And we've entered the same spirit of lawsuits that Paul is addressing here. Is there a willingness amongst God's people to suffer wrong, knowing that God will reward those who patiently suffer wrong, so that the community of his people will be maintained, and so that God might be glorified in how we respond to each other, trusting that he will reward us for righteousness and judge all our actions? Again, this is a question that we could go further. The question that 
first comes to mind when we talk about this passage as well. Does this only apply between fellow Christians? Or does this apply to non-Christians as well? I guess I would say this, and most commentators I read would say, Paul is specifically here addressing two believing brothers, two Christians going to court against each other. But the principle that Paul is applying would apply in many cases beyond that as well. We're not given in Scripture the, the right to get back at someone if they're a non-Christian, but not get back at them if they are a Christian. The, the call, and again, there's much wisdom needed in many cases, but the call to when reviled, not revile, when, when persecuted, to not respond, never is restricted throughout Scripture just to believers. I think that's how we need to take this here. Well, as we move into the last few verses of this passage, Paul wants us to see the seriousness of this question. Maybe, maybe he wonders, well, for, for believers with the issue of lawsuits, maybe they want to say, well, this is Paul's wisdom, but, but how big of a deal is it really if I go to get my rights and my due? Paul ends this section by looking over chapters 5 and 6 and driving home the consequences the consequences of both the sexual immorality and the selfish heart of lawsuits that he's just talked about. Do you not know, Paul asked the Corinthians in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The issue behind the heart that is being exposed by these sins is not, well, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that or it's probably not wise to do this. The issue at the heart here is those who are unrighteous Those who are not submitting to the heart of Christ, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are not just things that Paul wants the Corinthians to stop stop doing. Paul is bringing these up because he's concerned about their eternal destiny. Those who persist in actively practicing sin should not be deceived. We will not inherit the kingdom of God if we are unrighteous. I think this is such an important reminder for our culture as we look through this list of, of, of sins. Those who practice sexual immorality, greedy, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, homosexuals, we hear people saying and giving excuses for so many of these sins. We hear people saying, well, sex outside of marriage or pornography, it's just a natural part of who we are. We're just fulfilling desires God gave us. It's love. It feels right. This passage, of course, is one of several passages in the New Testament that specifically mention homosexuality. Even many Christians have resorted to responding to this issue by saying, well, it's okay for them, I just wouldn't do it to myself, for myself. No, I don't want to expound on this issue or any of these sins specifically tonight other than to say this. The key question for us is, will we submit to the authority of God's Word? Or will we define our actions by what we feel is right. What seems okay? Will we swim in the world of sexual immorality, of greed, or will we submit to the Word of God regardless of what we feel and say, this is my final authority. When this says no, when God says no, that is the definition of righteousness and unrighteousness. Regardless of whether something feels natural, desirable, loving, good, regardless of whether there are excuses or mitigating circumstances, God's Word calls us to holiness and reminds us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this isn't something that's just out in the culture. This is something that's here with us in the church. 
Sexual temptation and sin are here among us. Gender questions and and homosexuality are here in the church. Adultery and Facebook liaisons are something that happens in the pews of our churches. Greed and idolatry happen in our hearts. These are sins that we need to examine ourselves on and challenge one another on as brothers and sisters in Christ. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. We submit to the authority of God's word. You know, this is, this is a warning that we need to hear. But Paul doesn't end this passage with the warning. He ends with the unfathomably good news of the gospel. Isn't this the heart of Paul? He wants us to know the seriousness and the depth of sin. But he doesn't end on the seriousness and depth of sin. He ends with the incredible news of the hope that we have in Christ. See, the gospel doesn't come to call good people. The gospel doesn't just summon those who have done a great job to go ahead and meet Jesus. The gospel came to such as were on this list. What a, what a better way for Paul to express the gospel. What a beautiful sentence of hope when Paul lists these sins and says, no one committing these sins will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he adds, such were some of you, but you have been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the gospel came to sinners. The gospel came to sinners. And so the goal here is not to fix ourselves up so that we can get to Christ. The goal is to turn to Christ in our sin because the gospel hope comes to those who find these sins in our hearts. There is no one and no sinner beyond hope. I don't know if there might be some here who struggle with the guilt of past sins. Are there things we have done that when we think back upon, we wrestle with our failures? Do you know someone or a family member who you wonder, are they past the point of saving? Is there really any possibility that this person could come to Christ? Hear this declaration of Paul's. Those whom God came down and rescued were the notorious sinners, the lost the helpless, the guilty, because such were us. Such were us. That is the hope of the gospel. I was thinking about this picture of the gospel, of God coming down to save those who are sinners, not those who are clean. When we woke up this week to find that our youngest daughter had thrown up in the middle of the night, but rather than waking up, she rolled around in the throw up and went back to sleep. So we we woke up in the morning to find throw up crusted and caked on her head, spread all over the bed, and the room reeking to high heaven. And there is nothing, at least in my heart, that wanted to go in and pick up that baby at that moment. And yet, the love of a mother went in, picked her up, washed her, cleansed her, and brought her downstairs restored. What a picture! of God's love for his people. He reaches down while we are caked in all of our own filth. And he picks us up. He washes us. He cleanses us. And he restores us again to fellowship with himself. I just want to close by meditating on these three words. The the incredible depth and breadth of these three words that Paul uses to, to describe what Christ has done for us. He washed us He sanctified us, and he justified us. 
But Paul makes it personal. He writes to the Corinthians and he says, you. He doesn't just say we were washed or Christians were washed. He said, you. You were washed. And so we hear God saying to all of us tonight, you. You were washed. You remember when Jesus knelt to wash Peter's feet and Peter protested. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Jesus washed us of our guilt. He washed us of our shame. He washed us of the stain of our sin. Why? So that we may be a part of him. So that we may be restored to him. So that we may be united to him. And note the translation accurately describes here the tense of this verb. It's a past tense verb. You have been. You were. It's done. You were washed. You were washed. It's also a passive verb. If you know much about English, it's not something you do. It was done in the past, and it was done for you. You were washed. Jesus shed his blood to wash us in it, that we might be cleansed of our sin and be clean. You were sanctified. Note again that this is a past tense verb. And that's maybe different than we think of, because we think of sanctification as this sort of ongoing process whereby we become more and more holy in the image of Christ. And this is certainly true. The Scripture does talk about us being more and more formed into the character of God and us growing in sanctification. and talks about us becoming completed in sanctification at the last day. But this is not the only point in Scripture where it also talks about sanctification as a past thing, as something that God has done for us. See, God has set us apart. God has, that's the meaning of to be holy. God has set us apart. He has set us apart by Christ as his people. We have been cleansed and declared holy, or else we would not be able to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ, his son. We have been declared holy because of who Christ is, because we have been hidden in Christ himself. As one author puts it, he says, sanctification means that the believer has already been purified, and brought into God's fellowship. Yes, that's going to be worked out more and more fully in our lives as we wait our final sanctification in God's presence. But we have definitively already been made holy, declared holy in Christ, and brought into fellowship with God. You were justified. You have been accepted as innocent. You have been declared righteous. You have been declared accepted in God's sight. Why? Because of the work of Christ. Think of these truths. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were brought into fellowship with God. You were declared innocent. You were accepted by God as righteous in his sight. How can those who are caked in our own filth be declared washed, sanctified, and justified only because of the work of of Jesus Christ. All of these happen because we are brought into fellowship with Christ at His initiative by His work. And so as we close, I think Scripture's call here is twofold. One, marvel. Marvel at the work of our Savior. Marvel at the incredible work of God in Christ on our behalf. We were sinners, filthy sinners, but we were washed, sanctified, and justified by Christ. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him to the glory of His name. That is call number one. But second, remember why Paul detailed these words in the first place. Why was Paul talking about this in the first place? 
Paul was talking about this in the first place as an explanation for why we should not sin. He said, why, why, why should we not do this? Why, why should we act in this such a way? Because we've been washed, sanctified, and justified. We should marvel and praise our God, but as we marvel and praise our God and we realize what He's done for us, that becomes a core motivation that we might not sin. We are to be holy. This is who you are. This is what Christ has done for us, Paul said. So do not sin. Don't be like those who don't inherit the kingdom of God. You've been washed, justified, and sanctified. So live like it. This is who you are in Christ. This becomes a motivation for how we live. But of course, it's a circle. Because as we live more and more holy lives, we know that all praise and that goes to our glorious Savior. And so no matter which way we look at it, we're left singing praise to God. Father, we thank you for sending your Son who worked in us by your Spirit. You reached down to such as us, such as us who would be found on the ranks of those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. I pray that it would never, ever grow old hearing the news of what Christ has done. May it never be cliche, that there would never be repetitive, that Christ took sinners and made them righteous, and that includes us as we come through Christ. I pray that this would strike to the heart of, of tonight's passage as well. Oh Lord, give us grace to be peacemakers. Give us grace to be men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are not concerned first and foremost to get our rights or our dues, who are not concerned to make sure we don't get cheated or gypped, but who are concerned that Christ may be glorified, and who are willing to sacrifice the trivial things of this life, even if it's a lot of trivial things of this life because a lot of trivial things still don't compare to the weight of the eternal glory prepared for us in Christ. May we know this, agree with this, and live like this to your glory. We pray this through Christ's name.